Japanese-American theologian named uh, Kosuke Koyama, who once said to a group of us uh, theological educators, as you approach the Bible, you've got to make a fundamental decision. Are you going to read a book about a stingy God or a generous God? And I'm convinced that the God of Calvinism is a generous God. Welcome to this episode of Church Pivot, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Today, Case Thorpe has a conversation with author and theologian, Dr. Richard Mao. They discuss today's church and the challenges she is facing and the opportunities that wait just around the corner. <laughs> You'd better talk to my uh, successor, Mark Laverton, about that. I think yeah, if, if I was ever anything like a pope, uh, when I resigned my chair, somebody else took over. So, yeah. What is today's church? How might she pivot, keeping one foot firmly planted in the truth and another always reforming towards the best methodologies in order to make the shot to spread the gospel? Well, today we find out on this edition of Church Pivot. Hello, friends. It's Case Thorpe again, and it is my joy to serve our collection of churches in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church as moderator this year. So, I've heard from a number of you about the last podcast uh, with Dr. Tim Keller and that it went well. Uh, over 250 of you listened, and that was super encouraging. Uh, I hope that the the conversation and the topics that we explore here on this podcast help to make you a stronger leader in the church and to help your churches pivot towards a more robust, dynamic, and transformative place, uh, both for your people and your communities. Now, uh, since the last time we were together, uh, I've been on the road. Uh, I got to enjoy the cool mountain air of the Alleghenies. I enjoyed a libation at the bar where Wyatt Earp used to visit in the high desert air of Prescott, Arizona, there with the pastors on retreat in the Presbytery of the West. Presbytery of the Gulf South welcomed me to Houston with some amazing barbecue, and then the church planters retreat in Colorado Springs. Tons of fun. In fact, I wrote about that in last month's Church Pivot blog post. And then I got back here to the swamp, uh, the humid uh, presbytery of Florida, the Caribbean, and we had our first pastor's retreat that Mike Glodo put together, which was awesome. And we took in our first African-American teaching elder, and uh, that was really encouraging. So it's been a great run of travel, and I, I've loved it. I, I have learned so much and heard so much. And so I wanted to share three things uh, I've observed about the EPC. Three observations. Number one, uh, there truly is such energy and momentum, truly energy and momentum. In each place I visited, there was a palpable sense of purpose, of expectation, and concrete progress being made either in church planting, church revitalization, uh, local or global mission, or even care of the pastor's soul, more and more an issue we need to take note of. And I, and I really mean that about energy and momentum. I mean, I have seen too many denominations, been a part of one, with a whole lot of empty talk and clever marketing. 
but there really is some energy and momentum. So two examples, uh, Andy Cornett from the Signal Mountain Church, he was with me at the church planters retreat. And let me tell you, he was giddy for the fact that he and some other leaders in the Presbytery of the Southeast have just gotten permission to form a church planting commission. Now, a commission, you know, is different than a committee, and but they have the authority now to go forth and conquer. So Andy and a number of other young bucks are learning the ropes of church planning and developing this regional network that has both authority and responsibility. Really, really cool stuff. And then here at home, I'm thrilled. We just hired in our presbytery, Shane Wheeler as new director of church planning. And Shane hasn't even crossed the six month mark and he's already got leads on three different church planters in three Florida locations. He's working with a congregation in need of rapid revitalization in the Miami area and, and, and even mentoring a young man uh, for more in his church work. So energy and momentum. Very exciting. Second observation. Second observation concerns the the vision of Revelation 7-9 Task Force, where our hope is that our congregations will truly look like every nation, tribe, people, and language. And I have seen this beginning to happen in small ways, for sure. Like 30% of our church planters at the retreat are African-American or Hispanic. But then, let me tell you, the work of the Revelation 7-9 Task Force is occupying the conversation in big ways. It is the buzz. It is what everybody wants to talk about. So while Dean Weaver and Rufus Smith, uh, the formal work of the task force will come out at General Assembly, uh, this topic is on everybody's mind. Now, I hear like supporters get really excited about it and critics are a bit suspicious of this or that. And then there's a lot in the middle who are just waiting to see. But what I love is that, I mean, at least the pot is being stirred. There is conversation about what God is leading us to do and who he's calling us to be in the EPC. And the worst thing that could happen would be indifference. The worst thing. And the concern that as America diversifies in race and ethnicity, that our congregations are just going to get left further and further behind. So when folks talk to me about the Revelation 7-9 task force, their comments usually fall in about one of three different buckets. There's the theology bucket, the socio-political bucket, and then kind of the practical pragmatic bucket. So the theological bucket, those conversations, I hear folks wrestling with the vision of the church as described in Revelation 7-9, the sin that we see both in ourselves and society or the necessary work of confession and reconciliation if we hope to repair uh, the breach that's in our culture. A theological conversation also emphasizes the need for evangelism. And are we going to be about adult conversions in our most immediate neighborhoods around our congregations? Now, you can imagine the sociopolitical bucket, those conversations really are much more polarized. I've heard folks argue that a Marxist-based view of society, majority minorities, and systemic analyzation is corrupting our conversation. Uh, I think that's a little much. (laughs) But others, you know, are worried that we're trying to be politically correct. And, you know, being politically politically correct is just empty and vacuous when the gospel is both offensive and the sweetest truth one can know. Hey, I agree. Let's don't be politically correct for politically correct sake. 
Well, then finally, there's the practical kind of pragmatic voice. And they say, hey, look, the browning of America, as they say, is happening. It's happening. Do we want to die off in the way of the primitive Baptists? I mean, the church either evolves or it dies a long white death, say the pragmatists. And I can tell you, like from experience here at my church in Orlando, that we'll get new visitors to worship from the north or the west. And they'll say to me, huh, awfully whitewashed around here. I, I wonder what what's going on beneath the surface. Well, where will we land, friends? God only knows. But at least we're talking about it. And that is a good thing, I think. Third and finally, observation. Um. I've seen over my time with many of you that there's a recognition that we've got to do something and more in the next five to seven years as most of our pulpits become available as boomers retire. Do we have enough Gen Xers and millennials ready? Is the pipeline for leadership strong enough for teaching elders? Well, in a future podcast, I'm excited to share with you that I have invited three dynamic millennial teaching elders who are going to share with us a white paper they've been working on to call the church to cultural renewal and the missional way to get there. And, you know, there's a lot of sometimes uh, poking of fun at millennials with their craft beer and their, their fine leather goods and skinny jeans. But I'll tell you. And I've, I've observed this working with a number of millennials on our staff, particularly my dear buddy Tanner Fox at First Press. Uh, these cultural markers are a cry for authenticity, uh, for quality, and for saying, like, we're done with anything that isn't real or worth sacrifice. And, you know, I, I think that's pretty good for us in our future. So an example, like as a moderator of the General Assembly, I was asked to appoint a task force to study our generosity culture or lack thereof, and even to look at the per member asking formula, how we fund the national church. Well, it's in this conversation that millennial and Gen Xers have surprised me the most. Truly, when they learn that like 30% of our churches do not even participate in per member asking, they'll say to me, are those congregations in or are they out? I mean, if you're going to be a part of the club, then be a part of the club. <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't expect this. It, it's the boomers sometimes who will hem and haul and say, well, we want to find a way to make it work. And a Gen, X, a Gen Xer will interrupt me and say, you know what? The EPC was there for you when you needed a connectional home. It's your turn to be there for us and others. If not, move on. Wow. Like authentic, real, laying it on the line. I and mean, we've got such cultural pressure. There's not room for chaff. Either we're doing this or we're not. So I don't know where we're going to land. I just have hope then for the future leadership of our church and the way in which they're going to lead us forward. So friends, some pivotal insights to what all I hear you saying. I'm going to be sticking closer to home over the holidays and look forward to seeing in the spring, the presbyteries of the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, Pacific Northwest, number of different gatherings of elders and teaching elders here at the office of the General Assembly in Orlando, and possibly hop across the pond with Jeff Jeremiah to secure some fraternal relations with the Irish. Yes, yes. So some insights.
Well, now it's my honor to have with us Dr. Richard Mao as my guest. So Richard J. Mao returned to teaching in 2013 in the position of professor of faith and public life. After 20 years as president of Fuller Theological Seminary, an alma mater of mine for my doctorate. So before coming to Fuller in 1985 as professor of Christian philosophy and ethics, he served for 17 years at Calvin College in Grand Rapids and has also taught at Free University of Amsterdam, home of a mutual fan favorite, Abraham Kuyper. Um, he received in 2007 the no longer offered Abraham Kuyper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology from Princeton Theological Seminary, another alma mater. So, uh, Richard is a graduate of Houghton College, Western Theological Seminary, University of Alberta, and PhD from University of Chicago. Been the editor of the Reform Journal and author more of more than 20 books, including two that I teach in my seminars. Um, he shines in all that's fair. And when the kings come marching in, I highly recommend those. Dr. Mao has generated controversy for some and borne witness for others when it comes to interfaith dialogue. He's been a principal in the Reformed Catholic Dialogue and Interfaith Theological Conversations with Mormons and Jewish groups. So he's a father, a husband, and a grandfather. Richard Mao, uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Looking forward <laughs> to our conversation. Well, so I have a confession to make. Um, for the last podcast that I did with uh, Tim Keller, who I imagine you know well, yeah, I opened by asking Tim if he realized that many Gen Xer and millennial pastors call him the Presbyterian Pope. <laughs> well, he said he didn't know that, and then <laughs> he didn't laugh. <laughs> we just sat there with kind of dead air, and let me tell you, it was painful. <laughs> painful. <laughs> Well, so this morning I thought, you know, Case, don't try and be funny. But if I were to call you Pope of something, like, would Richard Mao be the Pope of Fuller? (laughs) You'd better talk to my uh, successor, Mark Laverton, about that. (laughs) If if I was ever anything like a Pope, uh, Mm. when I resigned my chair, somebody else took over. So, yeah. Well, you know, we've got two Popes right now. We might as well have two Popes of Fuller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I do appreciate you being here. So to kick off, I know you have done a lot of work and writing in the area of civility. Yeah. And um, absolutely, we find ourselves in a unique cultural moment, social media, national media, D.C. politicians. I mean, my goodness, a president who tweets often. It's uh, Some have said, like, we have the 24 second news cycle now, not even the 24 hours. Yeah. So, I mean... Are we getting more and more crass and losing our ability to have civil dialogue? And what are the implications for our congregations? Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, that's such an important question. In fact, uh, I think it's it's probably one of the, the two big issues that come to me from people in the pastorate, in ministry, about how they are to, uh, you know, lead God's people. Uh, mm. It's really, like, uh, after the election, for example, in 2016, you know, so many people, and I've got to say, too, uh, not just in the evangelical and reformed-type churches, but even in liberal churches, a lot of people don't know, you know, that they're, they're mm. good, probably a third of the members of the United Church of Christ, uh, the United Methodist Church, uh, the PCUSA, voted for, for Donald Trump. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, these, 
we hear a lot about you know the high high percentage of evangelicals, but this is a divisive reality in just about all congregations. And the problem isn't that people aren't aren't talking to each other; it's that they're not talking to each other. You know, mm-hmm. they're afraid to deal with it because they see these issues as such inflammatory. Uh, divisive, polarizing things that they decide, well, you just don't talk about that kind of thing in church. You know? They become taboo, certain yeah. topics. And the fact is, uh, the more more I have worked on this idea of civility, uh, you know, which really means civility is, you know, be, being, uh, being nice, being polite, being respectful of other people, in the public square. The word mm. civility comes from civitas, you know, which has a lot to do with city and public life. So, um, it, it, you know, we learn, we learn to be nice to people or at least know how to get along with people we're irritated with, uh, families, uh, in uh, classrooms, uh, little kids. Uh, you know, be nice. Uh, one of the first songs that I learned as a little kid after Jesus Loves Me was Be Ye Kind, Be Ye Kind, mm-hmm. Be Ye Kind to mm-hmm. One Another, you know. But um, it, it's more and more difficult these days to find kindness in public life. You know, when I, when I wrote my book on civility, I was very concerned about how religion was at the heart of about big global issues, you know, mm. Catholics killing Protestants, Protestants killing Catholics in Northern Ireland, and mm. Christians at war with Muslims in Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Jews and Muslims at war in the Middle East, you know, you get these. But uh, when my book came out, uh, and, you know, just within a couple of weeks, I got uh, phone calls, uh, interviews from both uh, the New York Times and the Boston Globe. Neither reporter mm. knew of the other, but uh, each of them was was writing about civility, and they wanted to talk about parking lots. <laughs> they wanted to talk about road rage on California freeways, about mm. how people treat each other in the aisles of Target <laughs> and Walmart, and uh, you know more and more it's come down to the the very basic patterns of of our lives that we have a hard time getting along you know so when 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 somebody is really nice to a waitress at at the waffle house this becomes a story mm-hmm. <laughs> on the washington Isn't that a post shame? yeah mm-hmm. i mean wow somebody was nice <laughs> you know? yeah so, how do pastors address this or demonstrate it well that's the question i get a lot well for for one thing I, more and more, I'm convinced that it's a question of spirituality. That is, mm. how we see the other person, and uh, and and it's it, it a willingness to learn from people with whom we disagree, and mm-hmm. not simply mm-hmm. tell them what what we think they you know, they believe. Uh, you know, you voted for Trump, uh, and, but and and I know why you did that. You're a racist, or you know. Mm. And to, to try to learn, the, what are the hopes? And I, I, we're going into the Christmas season as you and I are talking, and I love that line in the Christmas Carol that the hopes and fears of all the years are mm-hmm. met in Jesus Christ. And to see people, our Muslim neighbors, you know, the the Muslim woman who her big thing is not some kind of jihad against uh, Christians, but it's 
worrying about her kids getting bullied in the schoolyard. You know? Right, right. Uh, those kinds of issues. What are the hopes and fears? What, what, do, what do people weep about? What do people take joy in? And uh, th- these are spiritual issues. And, and to me, it begins with, well, I would say, Psalm 139, you know. Uh, Lord, search me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and right after we've said, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred, all of a sudden we stop and say, hey, search me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. And I, I think we need that spirit of humility, of empathy, mm-hmm. of generosity, of a willingness to learn, a willingness to... Uh, as a be wrong. Uh, pardon? Go ahead. A willingness yeah. to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. And just to, uh, to to make room for, there's a wonderful little book by a professor from Asbury on hospitality as uh, making room for people, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Is that Christine Paul? Making room for their fears and their concerns, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I have seen both pastors and the leaders of our own denomination struggle because uh, younger generations will want a statement on a social issue or a big event in the news. And yet I think there's great wisdom, particularly in our tradition, where we don't want to necessarily come out and say, this is right and that's wrong, or that's right and this is wrong, but rather, how do we think about this Christianly? Amen. Yeah. How do you use scripture to be discerning and wise and not so easy on the black and white, and then let people come to their own wise conclusions? Uh, absolutely. I, th- I think that's exactly right, because the, the job of the church, uh, you know, to use an old-fashioned terms, it's catechesis. It's the teaching ministry of the church. It's the, mm. the formation of people for obedience to the gospel. <clears throat> and so, you know, when we're, we're talking to our fellow church members, our concern shouldn't be that, that they have the right kinds of views, but rather that they, mm. they think about these issues out of a, a biblically informed understanding of what it means to be us, what it means mm. to be right with God, and what it means to show respect to all human beings who are created in the image of God. Mm. And uh, these are, <laughs> this is really a, a task I think that uh, the churches have failed at. Uh, we just don't get enough time for that kind of thing with people. You know, Netflix mm. and, mm. Uh, you know, the Fox News and the CNN mm. Mm. Uh, gets at our people in a kind of teaching ministry. That's right. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so how do we do that? You can't just do it in a 25-minute sermon. Mm. Uh, I heard a pastor say, how am I supposed to keep, compete with a 25-minute sermon when uh, Fox News and CNN are yelling at my people for hours each night? Right. But you know, here here's a here's a thing that I've been playing around with in my mind. Uh, I was uh, just let me roam a little bit on this, but I, I preached in this large Pentecostal church in Singapore, and the pastor there had discovered these were Chinese speaking, you know, Mandarin speaking Singaporeans. Pastor had discovered Kuiper. He Kuiper asked me to come <laughs> in and do a day of talks on Saturday about. Uh, uh, the cultural mandate and all of those good things mm. that you know those of us who love Abraham Kuyper uh, think about Christ and culture. And I just happened to say in passing at one point that uh, 
you know, you folks are, you know, this is a very American kind of thing. But but you take a program like like The Walking Dead. Uh, what's going on there? You know, why are people these days so fascinated with uh, where are, where are the bounds of our humanity? Be, you know, are, are these real human beings, zombies? Mm. You know, all the rest. Well, I found out that in that church, there were about 40 people who met one night a week to discuss the, 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 the last episode of The Walking Dead. <laughs> and and they, were, they were thinking, How do, what does all this mean for us as Christians, you know? Uh, and I was just amazed. And I thought, you know, suppose you had one night a week where you took some issue, and you, you need some of your young people to help you with this technologically, and that might be a wonderful thing. Mm. But suppose, suppose you had people come, I mean, you showed clips of, say, one issue, whether it's impeachment this week or mm. or uh, something about uh, immigration. Kids on, immigration kids on the border, and you just did a five-minute show of how Fox News treats it and mm-hmm. how CNN mm-hmm. treats it. And then you don't say, which do you agree with? But what's going on there? What, what's what are going they on trying there? to do to us? Uh, how are they trying to influence us? You know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But the important thing is not to get people arguing with each other about who was right. Yeah, right. You know, Young Life has this wonderful little thing that I learned from them. They said, if, if you want to know what a 15-year-old girl thinks about God, don't ask her, what do you think about God? Ask her, what do your friends think about God? Mm, and, that's, and, and well, I've suddenly, got a 15-year-old daughter, so I am trying yeah. that tonight. <laughs> and, and suddenly, she, you know, if you say, what do you, what do you believe in God? Well, um, uh, I guess it's like, uh, you know. But if you say to her, what do your friends think about God? She mm. suddenly becomes a kind of amateur sociologist. Aren't we you're, all? You're really finding out what she thinks, you know? Yeah. That's so suppose you say to, to these people, now some of you have a lot of friends who vote. You know, really like Donald Trump, and others really dislike him. How do you how do you think they're influenced by? Mm. You know, how do how would they react to how CNN does it? Sure, uh, but you got to get them not you know, sort of yelling at each other, mm-hmm. but trying to mm-hmm. represent the ways in which and 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 that could be such a wonderful thing. I think that's great. Yeah. Well. Uh, we need to take a break, friends. You're listening to Church Pivot, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Case Thorpe here with Rich Mao, and we're going to uh, be back in just a moment. Okay, so we're back. I am here with Richard Mao, Pope of Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, very grateful to have you, Rich. So a minute ago, you asked a great question. What's going on there? What's going on there? Well, I want to ask you that when it comes to your book, Calvinism and the Las Vegas Airport. Now, I'll admit, I have not read this one, and that's a bit risky to interview somebody over a book you haven't read, but it comes highly recommended to me by several really smart, important people. Uh, For some of our listeners who may or may not have read this interestingly titled book, Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport, let me read a little bit of blurb uh, about this book. The blurb says, what do the canons of Dort mean to people in the Las Vegas airport? And I love this. And 
does anyone there even care? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the movie Hardcore, a pious Calvinist elder tries unsuccessfully to explain tulip theology of his Dutch Reformed faith to a prostitute in the Las Vegas airport. This incongruous conversation demonstrates how Calvinism is often perceived today irrelevant, harsh, even disrespectful. So, Rich, tell us, how did you come across the idea and what are you trying to get at in this book? Yeah, well, when I when I uh, came on the faculty at uh, Calvin College in 1968, uh, right around that time, Paul Schrader graduated from Calvin. He was a very bright student there, raised in a very stern and, and uh, deeply Calvinistic family, church, Christian schools, Calvin College, and he left the faith and went to Hollywood and became a well-known uh, Hollywood director, producer. Uh, he, his big victory was, uh, the first one was uh, Taxi Driver, which is a very well-known film. Uh, but then a couple of years later, uh, he began to work on a film about Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, George C. Scott played uh, this stern Dutch Reformed <laughs> elder. Uh, his daughter had run away and gotten into the sexual underground in California and he goes out looking for her. It's sort of the prodigal the father mm. looking for the prodigal daughter. And uh, he, he finds this young woman Nikki, N-I-K-K-I who's a valley girl. She's also involved in this sexual underground. But she agrees to help him find his daughter. So they follow these. They go to San Diego and so they go to Las Vegas. She's no longer there. She's up in San Francisco. They're sitting in the airport and this pagan young woman says to George C. Scott character, why are you doing this? You know, why are you trying to, my parent, my father would never come looking for me. <laughs> and he said, well, it's, it's, it's complicated. And she says, well, tell me, we got time. Uh, it's about religion, isn't it? He said, yeah. Well, what is your religion? He said, I'm a Calvinist. She said, well, what's that? <laughs> and then he says, have you ever heard of the Synod of Dort? And she says, no. <laughs> and then he gives a fairly decent, like two to three minute summary of the five points of Calvinism, TULIP. Wow. And when it's done, and I won't quote exactly what she says, but it's, it's a, a close paraphrase. She said, gee, and I thought I was screwed up, you know? <laughs> and, and that's, in many ways, a wonderful exchange, you know? And then it hit me, suppose somebody like that asked me, sitting in the Las Vegas airport, what's a Calvinist? And I would not begin with the Canons of Dort. I'd begin with Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. You know, mm. what is your only comfort in life and death? Mm. And the answer, I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, mm. so I decided to write this whole book about <laughs> how how do you explain? Actually, while I was writing the book, I went to the Las Vegas airport, just sat there and looked around and said, suppose mm. I. Suppose I got into a conversation with that guy over there, you know, with blue hair and earrings and stuff, you know, sticking out of his, his nose and like uh, metal. Uh, suppose I got in a conversation with him about uh, what I believe as a, as a Calvinist. Right. And so my, that was that's how I got going on the book, you know. And and the fact is that. Uh, you know, in the most profound sense, and I'm, I'm a real Calvinist, and you are too. Uh, mm. That in the in the most 
profound sense, what we really believe is that there is a faithful Savior that was sent by a God who is in charge, sovereign ruler of all things, and that we're helpless sinners who desperately need to know that that God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. You know, Beautiful. that's at the heart of it. Yeah. And the reception. What kind of reception have you gotten from this book? <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, pretty good. I mean, it gets used. And I, I, I know places where they use it with high school kids. And, huh? uh, you know, at certain reformed colleges, they use it for the freshman class, you know, coming in. <laughs> sure. the kind of education we're, we're trying to give you. Yeah, pretty good all around. I think there were a couple of things in there that some people didn't like and maybe mm. were a little nervous about. But overall, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, I'm happy. It was, uh, I still get people, you know, pastors who saying, you know, I based the sermon series on mm. on uh, some of the ideas in this book and like, you know. I have a meeting on Thursday with uh, one of our up and coming officers who's actually in training right now. And she's really struggling with some aspects of Calvinism, as you can imagine. And um, we've talked about declaring scruples for Westminster and what that process looks like. And I'm grateful that at least she's going to be in conversation with me about it. Yeah. But I, I have found over the years in doing officer training, uh, it sometimes takes a while to get used to the realities of uh, reform doctrine and to live in them. It's like putting on a, a pair of clothes and just getting comfortable over time. And then the confession comes easy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, you know, the problem that there are, I mean, you and I really do believe this stuff. I mean, you know, I believe all of it. You know, Westminster Confession, Canons of Dort. Um, and, 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 and I think it's so important for us to, to think, in what ways is this good news? Because it often comes across as mm. bad news to people. Mm. Mm. Oh, well, there's this distant God, and he yeah. predestines all things, and he somehow he just sends some people to hell and other people to heaven, no matter what, what they've done, you know? Well, it's looking back on it with a cultural lens. That's right. And so we need to be thinking about, uh, and, and this is why the Las Vegas airport for me was an interesting challenge, you know? How would... If, if, if you know, if if I had a chance just to to say at at a certain moment in the Las Vegas airport, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're just going to take five minutes, and I just want to talk to all of you about uh, what the Calvinist God wants you to hear today. <laughs> what would I say? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I I I'm I'm not sure we would. Uh, I I think what we want to hear is that there, that there's a savior that. Uh, and, and, you know, in many ways, this is a wonderful, we have a wonderful opportunity because the idea that we're helpless. I mean, there are people these mm. days who are, who are that. atheists know that. who are really worried that, that yeah. the, the human race is going to go out of existence because of climate change. Well, 60% and, of Orlandoans, recently a report said, um, live daily with overwhelming hopelessness and despair. 60%. <sighs> Yeah. And you know what we want to say to them is, yeah, you're you're getting it right, except there's mm-hmm. one more thing we have to say. Mm-hmm. And There's that is, 
uh, there's a God who deeply cares about us and about his creation, you know. Mm. Mm. And he has done something that we could never do for ourselves. Without that, we are hopeless. But I don't know a, a theme that makes more sense today than that we're, we're, we're helpless to direct lives toward a, a good destiny uh, apart from the sovereign grace of God. Mm. Mm. Preach it, brother. <laughs> well, one last, uh, one last big question for our time remaining. Uh, so we as evangelical Presbyterians have had a lot of conversation about our prospects for a vibrant, robust, transformative future church. And some will say, oh, it's too late. We're a relic. Others like myself will say, wait a minute, don't count us out. We've got a big gospel and the ability to transform uh, our congregations for the new world. So you've been at Fuller since 1985. You've seen a Presbyterian or two come through the system. And so I'd be curious when you look at like, American Presbyterianism, share with us like the, the good and, and the bad and the ugly, and, and talk honestly about what is it in our EPC and DNA that will help us or hinder us in moving forward. Well, thank you. I, you know that that is a those are very important concerns. And uh, I was at a meeting last uh, two weeks ago at Wheaton with people from OPC, PCA, ah, <laughs> uh, the EPC, PC. PCUSA, RCA. Uh, you know, part of it is the, our, our divisiveness, uh, mm. even among us, those of us who want to be orthodox about these things that we often disagree about this or that thing. And, and uh, we're very much shaped by fights that we've had in the past mm. that people today don't understand. Uh, I, I think that uh, th- there's just no question that we're going to have to think some new thoughts about what it means to be a member of a church, you know? Mm. I mean, I mean, just I don't want to get into all the details of this, but I know of a case recently in an evangelical church where a married lesbian couple with two kids started coming to church and got saved, and they want to join the church and have their children baptized. You know? Yeah. Sure. What are we going to do about? It? I don't know. You know? Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are tough issues. They are. And. Uh, and and to announce the rules at the beginning, uh, I mean, we, we, I'm so glad they came to know Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, anyway, uh, I, I think we we have a lot of listening to do, a lot of struggling, and if we could just keep our our focus not on just the ideas, which are very important, and the rules, which are very important, mm-hmm. uh, but on on the reality of people who need to come to Jesus uh, just as they are without one plea but that his blood was shed for them you know uh, nothing they have to do be- before coming to our church uh, except to, to be willing to come to the cross you know sure, sure. Now, these, these are big issues and so I, th- I think we, we, we need to wrestle with, with new realities that just are not going to go away uh, the new awareness of realities but I want to say, too, I, I think that in all of this, uh, we, we really need to be focusing on a renewal of reformed Calvinistic theology. Uh, we, 
uh, you know, those basic themes of God's sovereignty and our own mm-hmm. our, our own helplessness as sinners and the grace of God and, and a generous spirit. I, I, a lot of the people who came before us were far more generous as Calvinists, including John mm. Calvin, Benjamin Warfield, uh, Abraham Kuyper, Herman Pavic. Uh they, they had a spirit of uh, what I call salvific generosity. Mm, interesting. That, that's often missing today, you know? And... Uh, uh, I, you know, Benjamin Warfield wrote an essay uh, right around the turn of the nineteenth, uh, you know, into the nineteenth century on mm-hmm. uh, how many people will be saved at the end, and mm-hmm. he was convinced it was going to be a huge number. <laughs> and and I I want to study more about what was going on there, but he wasn't. Uh, it, it, I, I've been quoting a. a Japanese American theologian named uh, Kosuke Koyama, who once said to a group of us uh, theological educators, as you approach the Bible, you've got to make a fundamental decision. Mm. Are you going to read a book about a stingy God or a generous mm. God? Mm. 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 And I'm convinced that mm. the God of Calvinism is a generous God. Mm. And Calvinist uh, theology shows us yeah. that. Yeah. And, but we need to be working on that. And uh, it's not enough just to and I love the confessions, and I'm I'm against you know departing from them. Uh, but we we need to be thinking about how we present all of this as good news to a culture that desperately mm-hmm. needs to hear good news. Mm. Wow. Well, and I don't think seminaries. I frankly, I don't think seminaries have done a good job of uh, equipping us for speaking to this postmodern. Mm-hmm. age in which we live I just think we we have a lot of good a lot of important work to do mm-hmm. on that well Dr. Mao thank you so much for your time and your wisdom I really appreciate it well thank you and blessings to you and blessings to all the folks out there who listen to these mm-hmm. kinds of conversations <laughs> well friends that's all we have and for this episode uh, i do sincerely hope that you have a beautiful and warm Christmas season celebrating the incarnation of our Lord Jesus with your family, your congregations, and your community. Uh, many thanks to New City Church, Brandon Queen, and Brian Smith for getting this podcast to you. This is Case Thorpe on behalf of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and I will see you in the next episode of Church Pivot. Keep watch for the next Church Pivot blog posting in January and another Church Pivot podcast in February. We would like to encourage you to share this conversation with your elders and church and use it as a tool to help form them for a dynamic ministry that is pivoting towards the future Christ has for us. I'm Brandon Queen, and thank you for joining us for Church Pivot, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church.